TLD podcast, Governance Uncovered, Local Politics and Development, supported by the Swedish Research Council. Today's podcast is part of a special series on migration. Last month, we looked at contact through sport as a tool to create cohesion in Iraq. This month, we talked to Claire Adida about how mass migration and the subsequent discourse affects host communities around the world. You can find more information about Claire and her research in the description. As always, this podcast is hosted by GLD director Ellen Lost. We hope you enjoyed the show. So thank you for joining us, Claire. Um, she is the associate professor at the University of California, San Diego, and the author of Immigrant Exclusion and Insecurity in Africa, um, Co-Ethnic Strangers, which was published by Cambridge in 2014 as well as a co-author with David Layton and Marie-Anne Belfort on Why Muslim Integration Fails in Christian Heritage Societies. Um, so I'm excited to talk to you about what I think are really, really important issues these days when we're looking at sort of the massive amount of migration that's taking place and often forced migration. Um, in fact, I was looking at the reports from the UNHCR and it was suggesting that in 2019 there were 70.8 million people who had been forcibly displaced. Um, and in 2018, at that year, there was an average of 37,000 individuals each day who were being sort of sent out of their place, many of them to other, other areas in their own countries, about two-thirds of them, um, but also many outside. So um, this is sort of an issue, of course, that in Sweden we see a lot, um, but we see it everywhere. So um, it's exciting, exciting work that you've done, which I think is also exciting because you're looking at it both in the U.S. and developed worlds, as well as also looking at it in Africa. Um, and so I want to talk to you today about um, what we find and how we can understand when um, we get sort of the uh, sort of levels of social inclusion or the sort of levels of kind of hostility towards towards migrants and how that might vary. So, um, so thanks for coming. Well, thank you for having me. Great. Um, let's start for a second thinking about the, the host communities and how they sort of welcome or, or don't welcome um, refugees or migrants when they come. Um, and of course, one of the things that you talk about in your work or that is a starting point in your work is that, you know, often there's a tendency to be exclusive, right? That it's not necessarily that everybody says, oh, great, there's more migrants and let's, let's welcome these, especially sort of refugees, right? And, and again, we do see this sort of attitude here. So can you give us a sense of um, what kinds of factors affect the extent to which that kind of exclusion exists and how we might, might think about that? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think what I can do is actually give you a, a counterintuitive perspective on this, mm -hmm. right? Which I, I think one of the most common, um, I think, misperceptions that uh, people have is that uh, when immigrants or refugees or any kind of migrant group comes in who are culturally close to the host community, to the host society, uh, that that cultural proximity helps mm -hmm. with integration. Uh, but when we look at this history of migration and migrant integration in a lot of different countries, what we find out is what, what we think is cultural proximity today, back then, those groups were not considered to be culturally close. So think about German immigrants to the United States, right? Um, there's these wonderful quotes that, that we can look up from, uh, from Ben Franklin about German immigrants and these dirty uh, immigrants who don't speak our language, right? And smell like sauerkraut. Yeah, and exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, but now we think about, you know, uh, 
the President Trump is a descendant of German immigrants, right? Um, that the, the quote unquote good kind of immigrants, according to, to some of the things he said. So uh, one of the kind of dominant themes in my work is that cultural proximity is really something that's constructed. So it's, it's, it's not an objective fact. Um, uh, it's a perception and it's something that changes over time. Um, and it's, this is really one of the um, big arguments and findings that came out of my first book where I looked at migrant communities uh, in West Africa. Mm-hmm. Uh, I looked at groups of urban migrants from Nigeria who migrated to uh, urban centers such as Accra in Ghana, uh, Niamey in Niger, and Cotonou in Benin. Um, and what I found was that uh, these these groups of migrants, uh, uh, when they actually shared an ethnic identity with their host community or a religious identity with their host community, so when they were culturally closer to their host communities, uh, it didn't necessarily lead to greater integration. It actually led to this um, this this counterintuitive result where um, both both from the immigrant perspective, the immigrant group wants to protect its identity as immigrant, as unique, uh, and so they resist uh, assimilating. Uh, but also the host community, they see these newcomers as a threat because they can they can assimilate quite easily and they can have access to the job opportunities that they have. Um, and so they also um, exclude them more. Mm-hmm. So I guess um, I guess this is one of the one of the main results or, or kind of counterintuitive counterintuitive claims that I make throughout my my research, which is that this sense of cultural proximity facilitating migrant integration and migrant assimilation is just not true. Right. Although it's also interesting, right, because you're suggesting that while there's a sort of a social construction of proximity and assimilation, there's also a sense in which you know, we can say, okay, this group is Christian as well as the host community is Christian, or there. I mean, we can actually sort of have some ways in which we can think about those who are coming as having cultural proximity, or that's or correct, not, right? Yes, yeah. So, and I'm I'm curious and, and interested to understand the extent to which um, the kind of the context matters, right? So if we're talking about something like uh, Nigeria, Benin, then we're also looking at places where jobs may be relatively scarce, economic conditions might not be so strong, you know, kind of the, the sort of social and political support for migrants might be weaker, um, versus if we're talking about a place like Sweden, where there's a sort of a social um, set of institutions that are, are set up to help to alleviate some of these problems that, that exist. So to what extent does do you think that matters in terms of how the um, the findings that you that you have? Yeah, I think this matters a lot. When you think about the context that I studied in West Africa, um, you're absolutely right that these are um, more resource-constrained contexts. And these are also contexts where the state plays a minimal role, really, in migrant integration, uh, especially compared to Sweden. So what you find is that instead of relying on the state in the context I, I looked at in West Africa, migrant communities rely on their community leaders, these informal community leaders who have a lot to gain from the the existence, the persistence over time of a migrant community. And so these leaders um, usually, um, they form relationships with local authorities in the cities in which they settle, uh, local police, for example, and they become um, kind of these these patrons uh, where they are able to offer benefits to their to, to their members right they can offer security they can offer access to uh, to jobs um, to uh, customers um, and uh, in return for 
uh, an identification with the migrant community. And so, so this is a very local, informal process that we're seeing, and it's, it's um, kind of in the absence of a more of a formal state coming in and offering these benefits. Um, I have also want to say that, that this is a, a phenomenon that I studied um, in, I was in the field in 2007, um, collecting data on this, and so it's, it's very possible that these things have changed since right. since then. Um, and, and these are, these are obviously very dynamic environments. Uh, so uh, I don't know that I would expect to find the same thing if I if I went back today. Um, that's one set of conditions. I would say there's another set of conditions, um, which is less about the role of the state or the access to economic resources or competition over resources, and that is. Um, and this is an insight that that sociologists came up with a few a couple of decades ago, and I'm thinking specifically of the work of Mary Waters uh, studying uh, Caribbean immigrants in New York, mm -hmm. where she f she found that um, for Caribbean immigrants coming to the United States, if they assimilate, they become black, they become black Americans, and what she called your uh, proximate host, the the community into which you would assimilate if you assimilated, if if that community is a marginalized community then you as an immigrant have an incentive to resist that. So she found that among Caribbean immigrants in, in New York uh, with some of the more recent work that I've done with Amanda Robinson at The Ohio State University. Uh, we studied um, the experience of Somali immigrants in Columbus, mm -hmm. Ohio, and we found a very similar um, phenomenon among Somali immigrants, where uh, Somali immigrants in Columbus, Ohio are um, uh, comprised of two distinct ethnic communities, um, the ethnic Bantus and the ethnic Somalis. And what we find is the ethnic Bantus, um, they can pass as black American much more easily than ethnic Somalis, just because of their this is the way they look. But we've surveyed them, we've interviewed them, we've done focus groups with them, and we find actually um, a very strong resistance to um, being identified as black American, African American, um, and to assimilating into this community. And this makes a lot of sense, right? This is a, this is a marginalized community in the United States. So immigrants are not these kind of passive groups uh, just waiting to assimilate. They, they see the landscape in front of them and they have sometimes incentives to, uh, to be immigrants rather than black Americans, for example. Right. No, I actually found that really, really fascinating. And, and frankly, uh, you know, when I read that, I was, it changed my perspective because I think often we think about the host communities. Does the host community accept? Do they not? I mean, there's a whole set of, of literature and, and work and, and a real emphasis on thinking about whether the host community is welcoming, right? Yeah. But not, I think, nearly as much about thinking about whether the immigrants actually, you know, do they want to be welcomed? Yeah, right? that's right. Um, and I'm wondering on the characteristics, you know, so we can think about things like religion, but we can also think of th about things like language, right? And of course, one of the, you know, we're doing a study ourselves in, in you know, in Turkey, Jordan, and, and Sweden on forced migration and Syrian refugees. And one of the big differences is that, in, you know, Syrians in Jordan, you know, it's Arabic is the common language, et cetera, whereas in, with the Turkey, of course, it's not the case and, right. and even even less so with Swedish. So does it, does it make a difference if the kind of the nature of connection is on something like religion or if it's on something like language? Uh, does it make a difference for integration? In yeah, for integration in terms of sort of, you know, the, the extent to which it's easier or, or less easy to assimilate if you want to, I guess is right. the question. Right. I mean, to the extent that, so are we assuming here that, um, 
religion is a bit more of a sticky um, uh, characteristic. Uh, it, it would be more costly to let go of your religion than to learn a new language, for example. That's a fascinating way to think about it. No, I was actually thinking a bit the opposite, that okay. in terms of kind of everyday communication and, and sort of feasibility right. of forming connections, that, that language was the thing that, you know, proximity and similar languages would be an easier um, thing, not because religion is hard to get over, right, but because um, you can sort of, it, you, can, you can compartmentalize religion, whereas, you know, the language is kind of more pervasive through. Yeah. Um, you know, so the one study where we actually looked at the role of language um, was the study that I did with David Layton and Marianne Valfort uh, of Muslim immigrants in France, where we looked to see if language was, if communication technology might be one of the reasons why mm -hmm. some groups of, of immigrants have a harder time integrating than others. And specifically, we were looking at Muslim immigrants in, in France compared to uh, comparable Christian immigrants. And we actually found that language in this situation was not it was not, was not a key. factor in the sense that um, the Muslim and Christian Senegalese immigrants that we were studying um, had similar levels of uh, ability to read and write uh, in French. I mean, they were coming from Senegal, so it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and, and yet Muslims were, were having a harder time integrating, so we were able to rule out language as, as a factor that really mattered. But I suspect that this is something that would differ across contexts and, right. and so I, I would I would hesitate to apply that to to the context you're thinking about yeah, yeah that makes sense I'm wondering if there's a ways in which we should think about um, kind of differentiating within these groups right so you were talking about sets of kind of key elites who in a sense kind of form alliances if we're talking about Benin or Niger and in terms of trying to solve problems and we see some of the same things for example in Lebanon and and in Jordan now um, you know, so to what extent does, I guess the question is, to what extent should we think about these groups even coming from the same place as being relatively homogenous, or in, and to what extent is, is there differentiation within them um, that, that's worth taking note of? Within the, a single immigrant group, say, you know, um, if we're talking about Syrians coming to Sweden, right, or if we're talking about mm. um, those in Jordan, for instance. Well, so th this is exactly the case of Somalis. So when you think of Somalis in the U.S., nobody's thinking about, oh, well, there's two, actually, two groups of Somalis. And when you look at the history of these groups in Somalia, they're very different. I mean, the ethnic Bantus were complete, were, were very much discriminated against in Somalia. Now, they come in and they're into the U.S. and they're considered Somalis, but they're actually, at least in Columbus where we studied them, they actually are completely segregated. They don't live in the same parts of Columbus. Um, Ethnic Somalis live in places where you see Africa, where you find African Americans, or the ethnic Bantus live in places where you, you know, they're really kind of in a um, kind of segregated public housing area. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so I, I, for sure, there are um, ethnic differences within these groups. That I think, well, yeah. in the cases I've studied, they do make a difference. I would venture to say, although this is not at all my area of, of expertise, that there's probably gender differences, um, right? So, so the experience of a, being a migrant woman is, is different, especially, uh, you know, for, for a lot of these groups that are, that are Muslim. Um, what's the experience of being a, a Muslim immigrant into a non-Muslim majority country or a Muslim majority country versus your male counterpart? Um, so, so I think, and you know, I think there's probably a lot of really, really important work that's being done on that. So I would, I would venture to say by, by ethnicity, 
by gender uh, for sure. I think that, and, and you don't know about it unless you actually go to these communities and you, you study them uh, really at a fine, fine grained level, right? That last, the last sort of differentiation of, of, of refugees or, or of, um, of migrants that I want to, to ask you about regards the differentiation between refugees or forced displacement and sort of, in a sense, voluntary. Mm. Uh, we might put economic displacement or economic migration into the at least more voluntary side, right? Um, do we have any evidence that it makes a difference whether, like, the reason why people are coming, either in terms of the, the migrants sort of, uh, willingness to assimilate. I mean, at least in some of the cases I know, you know, people for a very long time think that they're going back, right? So, uh, you know, if we're thinking about the extent to which you say, okay, well, I've come and I'm, this is my new home, um, a lot of times forced displacement doesn't necessarily um, lead people to at least immediately give up the hope of going back um, to where they've come from. I'm just wondering if there's any any good evidence that is distinguishing between those groups or, or work that's distinguishing between those. You know, I don't know. So my work doesn't. Um, I can speak a little bit to how host communities perceive mm -hmm. immigrants versus refugees versus asylum seekers differently. But uh, in terms of um, surveying um, the desire to go back uh, by by migration by migrant type, right. uh, I don't have I don't have any knowledge of that. Mm -hmm. um, I, I will say that even among similar kinds of migrants, so when we were looking at these Senegalese immigrants to France, these were, um, I would say they were economic migrants. They left Senegal during a time of drought, came to France um, to look for job opportunities. Uh, and so even within that group, uh, we found that uh, Muslim immigrants were uh, much more oriented towards going back than mm -hmm. were Christian immigrants. Now, whether or not that's uh, a result of their hard, the harder the, the, the obstacles they face integrating, or whether it's something that they uh, predisposition that they've always had, I, I don't know. But so, even within the same migrant group type, right? These are both mm -hmm. voluntary migrants. These are both economic migrants. You see these differences in terms of um, wanting to be buried back home, owning a house back home, sending money back home, wanting to go back. The, uh, the only thing that I, that I know in terms of the difference between uh, migrants, immigrants and refugees and asylum seekers, and I know this because we just, um, we just fielded a, a, a big survey in, in the U.S., a representative survey in the U.S., asking people um, about how uh, warmly they feel. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a, um, a Likert scale type uh, warmth uh, thermometer uh, measure towards these these three different groups. And what we found, which is really interesting, is that Americans feel equally warmly um, towards uh, immigrants and refugees. There's really no significant, statistically significant difference. But when you say asylum seekers, that actually is, you lose some warmth there. So, which is interesting because when you think about asylum seekers and refugees, it's, it's, it's really a legal... Um, administrative right. legal distinction, but they're the same. They're both involuntary migrants, right? right? One, sh one got registered outside the U.S. and was re resettled, and the other showed up at the border. So they came for the same reasons, and yet Americans um, perceive asylum seekers uh, less, they, they have less warm feelings towards asylum seekers than they do towards refugees. When was this fielded? Uh, we fielded this uh, just in um, November of 
of 2019. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Now I'm I'm curious because of course it's also fitting within this whole debate about asylum seekers mm -hmm. in 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 the sort of U.S. politics at the moment, right? Yeah. So an interesting question of the extent to which that is framing how people how people think about that. And even if they're thinking about the same, and maybe you've, you've controlled for this, but they're thinking about the same types of, you know, are they thinking refugees came from abroad and they're thinking asylum seekers came up from the southern border? I mean, that's an... Yes, they, they usually, yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, the, 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 the whole rhetoric about the caravans are coming yes. from, from the south, uh, for sure. That elite rhetoric... Um, I'm speculating here, but but I'm sure that that elite rhetoric had an effect on public opinion. Yeah, yeah. So I want to turn to some of the really interesting work that you do. That's thinking about how we can, um, you know, kind of shape the attitudes towards towards migrants or towards immigrants, right? Um, and so um, I'll let you I'll let you sort of describe it. But um, I find it exciting that you're thinking about the ways in which you can um, potentially increase empathy towards them or take use perspective taking kind of um, ways to get people to you know potentially be a bit more welcoming of of immigrants can you tell yeah. us a little bit about both you know, that work but also your findings yeah i mean it is research that i'm very excited about because for a long time um political scientists have researched uh what explains exclusion of immigrants mm -hmm. and we know what explains exclusion of immigrants we know that there are these threat narratives that go around about migrants being an economic threat or a cultural threat or a public health threat or a security threat i mean all these things actually work mm -hmm. they do shape public opinion and and, and lead people to be more excluding and so now what I'm excited about is, is turning that around and thinking about, okay, so how can we be more including of migrants? And, um, you know, when you look at public opinion towards refugees, for example, Americans have always been quite opposed to taking in refugees ever since uh, Gallup has asked this question uh, since the 1930s on uh, representative samples of Americans, right? Should we be taking German refugees? Should we be taking uh, Hungarian refugees? Should we be taking Vietnamese refugees, refugees from Kosovo, Syrian refugees? It's always pretty high levels of opposition to that. And so um, uh, what my co-authors and I are, are trying to do is trying to understand whether we can uh, move people towards greater inclusion. One of the things that we're uh, looking at is the role of empathy. And the reason why we're looking at empathy is because in there's a lot of research in psychology and social psychology in the lab that shows that um, empathy or perspective taking, uh, which is um, imagining yourself in the other person's shoes, uh, has an effect um, of reducing prejudice towards mm -hmm. others, of increasing altruism towards others, of increasing cooperation with others. Um, and so they have all these really encouraging findings in the lab. And what we have tried to do is to see whether the, these findings um, can replicate outside the lab and can be applied to um, public opinion towards vulnerable minorities, such as refugees. So we have one set of findings that we published um, uh, a year and a half ago uh, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, uh, where we took a, we did a survey experiment where we took a perspective-taking exercise that is actually already out there that um, the Pulitzer Center, um, which is a nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan um, organization, um, has on their website uh, for use in, in classrooms, mm -hmm. for instructors to use in classrooms, which is really just a, um, a very simple, light-touch perspective-taking exercise that asks people to imagine themselves in the shoes of a refugee um, and to think 
really concretely about where where would you go? What would you take with you? Who would you bring with you? Right to really kind of go through that thought process. Um, it's it's a strategy that we found on the Pulitzer Center's website. It's a strategy that the UNHCR has used actually. Um, uh, it created uh, an an app uh, a decade ago. It created an app that was you know imagine yourself in the shoes of a refugee. What would your journey be? Um, and now it it has uh, it puts together these videos that it posts on social media that are videos. Uh, about the life, uh, one day in the life of a refugee in a refugee camp. So refugee advocates are using are using these messaging techniques, these outreach techniques. And so what we wanted to do was um, test how effective this was. So we included this strategy into a survey experiment, and we had um, uh, this was in 2016, just before the presidential election. We had respondents um, randomly assigned to this perspective taking exercise. You know, answer these questions about imagining yourself as a refugee. Um, some respondents were randomly assigned to to not, none of that, um, and then some respondents were randomly assigned to an alternative message, which was just a graph showing how many Syrian refugees the U.S. had committed to resettling okay. per capita, uh, compared to France and Canada and Germany. So it's not many. Not many. I mean. I, <laughs> can't see the graph here, but if I showed you the graph, uh, it's obvious that the U.S. has per capita resettled very few um, Syrian refugees. And so we wanted to see whether just presenting people with mm -hmm. the facts w would have an effect and comparing that to the perspective taking exercise. And um, then the outcome that we studied was um, uh, we wanted to kind of get beyond just a survey measure of, you know, how warmly do you feel towards towards refugees, which we do ask. But what we were really interested in was taking action. Mm -hmm. Were people willing to take action on behalf of refugees? So we gave people an opportunity to write a letter in an anonymous forum to the next president of the United States. So we didn't know who it would be at the time um, to uh, urge a greater resettlement of, of, of Syrian refugees. And so, so people had a chance to actually write these letters and we eventually mailed this off to, to the administration. Um, our finding is that the perspective-taking exercise uh, increased uh, the probability of people writing letters, positive letters, um, to the president um, compared to people who did not receive mm -hmm. such such a perspective-taking exercise, and that the graph had no effect. So, really, when when you look at you know the three groups of respondents that we had, the respondents who didn't get anything, the respondents who got the graph and the respondents who got the perspective-taking exercise, you see that the perspective-taking exercise um, had a unique effect on willingness to take some political action um, to um, on behalf of, of refugees. So, so that was really encouraging. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it was one study. So what we've done since then is we've um, we've tried to, to do more studies looking at um, um, more perspective-taking exercises, and what we found, uh, so in the the in particular, the, specifically the perspective-taking exercise that we're looking at, um, is, and this is specific to the U.S., is asking people um, which generation in their family came to the U.S. So who was the first generation in your family to come to the U.S.? So so kind mm -hmm. of reminding them that they may have also been an immigrant at some point. Um, and uh, we find that when people are forced or are encouraged to think about that, um, and then later on in the survey are asked 
whether immigration levels should be increased or decreased or kept at the same level, um, they are more likely to um, want to increase immigration levels when they're uh, being asked to think about themselves as immigrants, mm -hmm. uh, which is another way, another perspective-taking exercise. And we've actually been able to replicate this um, uh, a couple different times, uh, and uh, as recently as this November uh, 2019 survey. Uh, so it's really encouraging, right, yeah. to, to be able to find this ef consistent effect in um, three or four different surveys uh, over a period of um, two years, uh, three years. And are you asking them to think about the hardships and the and the sort of decisions that their, you know, that their grandparents or great grandparents or great great grandparents had had to make, or are you simply asking them to remember that they're, that they themselves come from immigrants? In the, we did this in three different surveys. Mm -hmm. In the first two, we only asked the question. That's it, um, and it had an effect. In the third survey, we asked the question, and then we asked them to expand on it. We didn't, we didn't want to. Again, we al we always want the intervention to be light touch because we think that respondents um, were pretty savvy and they can they can tell when mm -hmm. we're trying to move them in a certain direction, and we didn't want to create any backlash effect. And so we really just asked them in an open ended manner to. Um, to elaborate on this. And because this is our latest survey uh, that we just got the data for, we haven't analyzed what they've written yet. Um, but in, in that third survey, we did ask them to think about it a little bit more. That's exciting work, actually. Yeah. I mean, it's also really exciting because of the, you know, if we think about the policy implications of it, right? So um, if you were to advise the Swedish government or if you were to advise the US government administration, um, what would you? What would you suggest? Well, I mean, the thing that's really interesting about this is that we started off by looking at something that's already being done mm -hmm. by refugee advocates, right? Because we didn't want to do something that we as academics thought about that was completely disconnected from reality. Right. So, so it's so it really, we're very good at doing that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but um, so so this really is more of a evaluation of an existing messaging technique that advocates are already using. Um, now, you know, what would I, what would I advise the government? I think what, ma what I'm learning from this is that um, elite rhetoric matters quite a bit. Now, I can't force candidates or presidents to speak a certain way or prime ministers to speak a certain way or to say certain things, but I think at least we know, we have a better sense now of the kinds of rhetoric that um, lead to exclusion and the kinds of rhetoric that lead to inclusion and does exist that mm -hmm. you can create uh, more uh, in inclusive attitudes, uh, not just, you know, fear mongering. Right. That's right. Um, is there anything else that you'd like people to know or other um, kind of key messages from your work? You've done a, a, an amazing amount of work on this and also on a lot of other topics as, as well. But um, are there things that you feel that um, that we've missed that you feel people should know hmm no I mean I you know you've asked me about all of the all of the topics that, that I've studied uh, over the past decade so um, uh, no I think I think we've covered it all That's great. Um, thank you very much for the opportunity thank you thank you so much